Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to VUX World. I thought I'd let that run a little bit because I wasn't sure whether it was live, but it is It is live, so welcome. Plus, I just like that song, so sometimes I just like to listen to it. Don't get to hear it that often. We only do two of these a week. Uh, but welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, as always, Kane Sims, and uh, we're going to have an epic conversation today. We've got Matt Portillo, who is the lead conversation designer at Amelia, another Gartner Magic Quadrant leader. We seem to be going through Gartner Magic Quadrant uh, platforms on this podcast like there's like nothing else. Uh, so we will get into that conversation in just a minute. But before we do, shout out to our presenting sponsor, Deepgram. Uh, Deepgram, if you don't know by now, is industry-leading speech recognition uh, that you can use actually for any of your speech recognition requirements. It doesn't matter whether you want to use it for call transcribing or, or whatever, meeting transcriptions. But a lot of organizations and a lot of people are using it for the creation of voice assistants. The first part in that puzzle of the perception of what people have actually said and translating that into text to feed it into your NLU, Deepgram does that incredibly well. You can retrain it based on your domain or your your specific industry or your specific jargon that people talk about, your products and services, things like that. Uh, it's incredibly cost-effective. It is very quick, which is imperative when you're creating voice assistant conversations, as we'll likely find out during the course of this conversation, that you need to have it at least perceiving to be human-like. You don't have to necessarily convince somebody you're talking to an actual human, but you need to have a response time that's at least similar. And so you need fast technology and deep gram has exactly that. So please do go and check out deepgram.com forward slash VUX world if you are interested in learning more. That is deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'd like to welcome Matt Portillo of Amelia onto VUX world. Matt, welcome. Hey there, Kane. Thank you so much for having me. It's, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Like a long, long time admirer. I've, I've, I've been saying that it's weird because the last couple of weeks I've had people on the podcast who I've kind of, um, or, or I was on a panel at the beginning of the week uh, as well with people who who I've. I'm so familiar with. I feel like, you know, I feel like we're kind of like best friends because I see their content all the time. I see their videos all the time. I watch talks from them all the time, but never had them on the podcast and on the show. And you're one of those people. So I feel like we kind of, you know, long lost brothers or something like that, especially with my new hair being so long as well. So yeah, I, yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think all, all of us, I, um, I actually was, um, uh, you know, just speaking to people who are out in the world. I, I, I met um, Hans von Dam in the mm. in the flesh the other day, and got to, there's a there's a picture of us floating around LinkedIn. Yeah, somewhere. I saw that. Both, yeah, yeah. Both, of us, both of us have way longer hair than we have in our in our LinkedIn profile pictures. And I was like, <laughs> It was like, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not catfishing. We just, we just screw our hair out. <laughs> it's crazy. What you say though about the, about the conversation design community and all these people, like we kind of, yeah, we all sort of feel like we're all friends, even though most of us have never met in mm. person. And I think that that is something that's really special about, about this community and, um, you know, are, are, you know, always talking with each other on LinkedIn and doing, you know, this conference or that podcast or, 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 you know, this, you know, blog article or whatever. It's, it's mm. really cool to work with, uh, you know, or I should say alongside um, mm. a lot of people out there who are doing great things, creating great stuff and, and driving good conversations that I think it's good for, um, for the, this whole industry to have. You're yeah. definitely, you, of course, are, are the <laughs> foremost among them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's a really, it really is a really good community and everybody's really active and really passionate. And it's, there's nothing better than bumping into someone uh, now that we can actually go to conferences again. Yeah. Um, I was in Edinburgh a couple of weeks back. It was the first conference I've been to since uh, I was just mentioning before we went on air that I was in uh, Chattanooga in 2020 in January. That was the last one I went to. I went to Edinburgh a couple of weeks back and, you know, just meeting people there who like, I think Micah Coppins, Ron Ashery from, from yeah. open dialogue, you know, people who I've spoke to so many times and, and, you know, there's a bunch of others as well. And it's like, here you are actually in person. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, fantastic really. Well, thank you for joining us, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, I really do appreciate that. I know you've just got back from a, from a world tour, which you could probably call it a world tour. Um, so yeah, definitely appreciate yeah. you appreciate you joining us. Uh, so so for those that don't know Matt, maybe it might be nice to introduce yourself and and for those for those people that don't know Amelia, maybe also introduce Amelia and tell us a little bit about that as well. 
Yeah, sure thing, sure thing. Um, so yeah, my name is my name is Matt Portillo. Matthew Portillo um, is is my full name, which you see on on LinkedIn. But everybody seems to have an easier time with Matt, so feel free to call me whichever you like. Um, uh, I'm the conversation design lead here at Amelia, and I've worked I've worked at Amelia. Um, uh, for about five years now, um, you might know the company by by its previous name, um, IPsoft. Um, and uh, so, but yeah, we've been here doing um, doing conversational AI for um, for a good while. I mean, I would say that we're that we're one of the kind of original players in in the space and sort of its current um, iteration. Um, Oh, we've lost him for a brief second. This might happen, boys and girls, a little bit here and there. Uh, it was happening <laughs> just before we came on, uh, but it was happening for a split second. Usually he's back by now, but uh, maybe we'll have to uh, have to hang fire. But I will tell you a little anecdote while, while we wait for Matt to return, which is that Jeff Smith Jr., who used to work at what was then IPsoft, was one of the very first guests on the VUX World podcast. And there's an episode from 2018, the beginning of the year in 2018, called something like, what is conversational AI? And Jeff Smith basically gives you an overview of what conversational AI is and how it works and all that kind of stuff. And he was leading the engineering team at IPsoft, which then went on to be uh, Amelia because I think the history of it, I'll do Matt's job for him. Don't worry, Matt. I'll do I'll, I'll fill people in on the history of the company. Uh, <laughs> IPsoft had created an avatar called Amelia. And you might see if you go to the Amelia website, amelia.ai, that this avatar is everywhere. And uh, it's a blonde haired lady called Amelia. And presumably what was happening is that the company were getting a lot of traction with the adoption of this digital avatar, uh, which was really early actually compared to, uh, compared to what many organizations were doing at the time. And even what many of them are doing now, not many actually have an avatar front and center as one of the primary interface types or interaction types of their platforms. It's mostly left to the conversation itself. Um, but Amelia was, don't worry, Matt, I'm just doing the rest of your job for you. I'm just uh, filling people in on the background of Amelia. <laughs> yes, so sorry about that. I, I, I came back to my desk and, and, and plugged into the, uh, and plugged into the hardwire internet. Yeah, that's, that's so No worries. Sorry. No worries. No problems. So what I was doing, I was just explaining there that uh, one of the first episodes of the podcast was with Jeff Smith Jr., mm -hmm. who used to lead one of the engineering teams at IPsoft. And mm -hmm. the episode we did was episode number one or two, maybe two or three. And he was explaining what conversational AI is back when it was yeah. IPsoft. So I was just explaining there about the digital avatar, Amelia, Presumably, my, my thoughts is that the avatar being front and center as it is, which is unusual for a conversational AI platform, mm -hmm. usually just yeah. focused on the conversation rather than mm -hmm. a, a visual embodiment yeah. of it. Uh, so my thoughts were, theories were, maybe you can confirm this, is that the avatar side of things was getting a lot of traction and was being used quite a lot and therefore led itself into the the kind of change of brand from IPsoft into Amelia to really lean into that concept. Am I on the right lines or is that not quite correct? Yeah, I don't know if I would say that. I think that um, I, there are a lot of... Uh, yeah, there there are people who come in and they're interested in the avatar for, you know, for whatever reason. You know, maybe it's a little bit more consumer facing. Maybe it's you know something like a retail experience. But a lot of the a lot of our more enterprisey, I'll call them enterprisey clients, they're you know they're not interested in necessary in the av a moving avatar or really even or really even a visual representation at all. A lot of the implementations we work on are voice based, and so of course you know the av avatar is you know completely irrelevant in that case. Um, so, but I, I mean, I think that, I think that what's nice about having the avatar there is that, is that, yeah, it just makes, you know, it, it, it makes the brand a little bit more, a little bit more memorable and, um, and, uh, and, and a little bit, and a little bit stickier. So, um, it, it's, it, it's a marketing decision at the end of the day. And I would say, you know, as far as our practice, it doesn't really, it doesn't really affect that much. And, and, and our, and our clients and partners are totally free to, you know, not only take or leave the avatar, but they can actually, you know, they can actually change it, you know, whether it's a static thing or if they want to, you know, really invest a whole lot of resources in creating something, you know, in creating something else, you know, a different kind of, in a different kind of character, you know, like, 
you know, obviously, uh, can can be changed uh, can be changed a lot. Mm, interesting. Yeah, we're gonna have um, Rob Cunningham uh, from LNER on the podcast on Tuesday. <clears throat> they trialed a digital avatar in a train station in the UK, in Newcastle mm. train station, and mm. it was like a fully sized like I don't know if it was holographic, probably like a, a screen basically, uh, with a digital avatar on it that was doing wayfinding and helping people out and stuff like that. So it's a, it's an interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and it all like the avatar thing. I think is totally dependent on the use case. I mean, I'm um, I, I'm of the mind that that um, that there has to be some some nuance in how we in how we approach it and. Um, and one thing that you one thing that you see in a lot of the in a lot of the marketing of the of these platforms is this you know like you know like the human like approach right you know the most human AI or the superhuman like or um, or or whatever the case is and I think that and I and I think that that's cool in terms of um, just you know kind of human computer action human computer interaction but you said something really interesting earlier when you were talking about deepgram is that you don't want like no one's here to try to fake users into thinking that they're talking with a human like it doesn't it, it doesn't and maybe like shouldn't even ever be at that at that fidelity like we're because we're not here trying to fool users and if you are then i'm sorry but like that's unethical and you don't belong in this space um <laughs> You know, but there's a difference between like, you know, between a very human-like experience and that in the, the, the AI is, is projecting like a human and versus a human-like experience and that the AI understands you as well as a human does. And I think that when we talk about, you know, you know, the most human AI and stuff like that's that's really more what we're trying to get at is these is these human is these human-like experiences in that you don't necessarily need to speak like a robot in order to be understood. Um, and then, so same, you know, to kind of take that back to what we were saying about the avatars, um, you know, the avatars can be a little bit, it can be a little bit gimmicky sometimes. And and that's okay. You know, in certain, in certain cases, you know, I, in fact, like the wayfinding in, in the train station, I think that that's kind of cool. I, um, um, while I was traveling, I saw a, <laughs> I saw a little robot on wheels, you know, <laughs> delivering, delivering drink orders in a restaurant. I was like, huh, that's wow. interesting. I, I saw another one, a wayfinding one at the, at the world expo in, in Dubai a couple months ago. And, and it was, and, you know, kids think it's kind of fun and it's, and it you know, makes for a stickier, more memorable experience within the context of, of, you know, kind of a laid back environment. But then like to take that onto the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, if I have a, if I have a client, you know, coming in and they want Amelia to, you know, resolve help desk inquiries, you know, reset my password, unlock my account, connect me to the Wi-Fi, Like, you know, it, like if that client tells me like, Oh, and we wanted to, you know, we want the avatar, we want a human face. And I'm just, I kind of look at that. And I'm like, why? Because mm. <laughs> like people, especially people at work, you know, they don't, they don't engage Amelia or any conversational assistant to, you know, be, for the novelty of talking with a, talking with a robot, right? They, they engage these, these assistants because they have something to get, that they need to get done. Mm-hmm. And, and to the extent that you can get that done, that they can get it done easier and more efficiently um, uh, than, than they would through some other channel, like they'll have success and they'll, they'll appreciate the, the conversational AI channel as a way to do that task. But, you know, if, you know, they, I think I've, I personally find that avatars in those settings are, mm. are, 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 are counterproductive actually. Mm. Um, but, but it's important, again, this is, this is the nuance, right? Is that you, um, you can't ever apply a one size fits all approach. And that's, you know, and, and that kind of, you know, comes back to around to the way we even think about design thinking to begin with. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So yeah. what, what, what is the, what's the kind of approach that you tend to take then in terms of from a conversation design perspective, sure. where, where does in your kind of role or maybe it's broadly at Amelia, uh, but, but likely more with your role, where, where does it, where would a typical project begin? I suppose yeah. is the question. And, and then what's your kind of involvement and what's the process that you kind of go through when, when approaching something like that example you just gave there of a, you know, uh, a kind of customer service based bot or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the most important things is that I mean, there there is a there is a life cycle to these projects, right? And that starts in you know it as as like you know a sales lead essentially. Like, I mean, let's let's be honest. Um, our <clears throat> you know, new prospects, you know, they don't come to me, you know, they go upstairs to, to my colleagues who, who work in sales and they can, and, or maybe even my sales colleagues in sales go to them either way. You know, there's a conversation started about like, okay, you know, there, there's an idea, Hey, you know, we have a business problem or we have a user problem or like a customer experience problem, something, something kind of like that. And they, in the, you know, they kind of have an early agreement on conversation, conversational AI as, as a solution. And that's awesome. Um, I think that the best place for conversation designers to get involved is, is pretty, pretty soon after those, those early, early discussions um, to, to sort of guide some of the thinking sort of to help channel some of those, some of those discussions and, and, and call out, you know, maybe, steer clients away from maybe some some ideas that aren't going to be as productive and maybe steer them towards some some things that that will be more productive um but in any case that you know that this the the, the ball keeps kind of keeps kind of coming down the 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 conveyor belts you know so to speak you know pick your metaphor <laughs> and and then it and then it lands you know a deal a deal is signed you know yay our client is going to use conversational ai um but then, you know, then what? Um, I think then it's it's important that the that the design um, that the design happens and that the kind of this vision casting continues to happen in conjunction with the with the the client before any engineering um, takes place. Um, I should say engineering on the on the conversational AI experience itself. Engineers can definitely take advantage of this time to work on APIs, um, you know, to kind of do do research into the into data systems that they'll hook into. But um, but meanwhile, I think it's really great for designers to be you know doing, if possible, a little bit of user research, a little bit of of engaging stakeholders, and you know, and the higher up you know, the leadership chain you can get, the better. Um, engaging stakeholders about, you know, what is the business problem that we're trying to solve and what is the user problem that we're also trying to solve? How can we make users' lives easier? How can we make these, you know, their tasks more efficient? Um, it, you know, if you have one without the other, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a, you know, this great experience that doesn't make, that doesn't really have any, you know, uh, financial incentive for the, for the business to, to really, you know, keep, keep investing resources in and otherwise you're going to have a, you know, a business process that's automated and, and, you know, way more financially sustainable. But if users don't want to use it anyway, then maybe you're not even going to get that return. So you kind of, so a good, like good senior designers can kind of, can come in there, can, you know, can do user research, can come in and speak with stakeholders, understand the business, um, work with subject matter experts to, to, to really ideate and come up with a you know, an idea for, how conversations could proceed, um, you know, what, um, you know, how we can make processes easier for users. And then once we design that conversation, design those interactions and what, um, and what those are going to look like, then we kind of hand it off to engineers to do, to do the development. Um, one thing I'm leaving out actually is, is that, that, you know, users, their, their language needs to be studied as well that because there's so the NLU component is so um, is, is so intertwined with the um, with conversation design so so you know whether you're full stack conversations designers who are doing that or other NLU architects who are coming in um, um, being able to kind of start start working on those NLU models um, early on is is really is really important, and then you know hand it off to developers to to you know kind of continue their work, um, sort of putting it all together. That's mm-hmm. that's how I that's how I see the process going um, and, and and beginning and just you know, in, in in a nutshell. Nice, nice. That's that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting there. You mentioned the term full stack conversation designer. Mm-hmm. What, how would you define a full stack conversation designer? Well, full stack conversation designer. I mean, I, I guess first of all, a caveat that we actually don't have that role um, here here at Amelia. But I mean, if we did, a full stack conversation designer is is someone who is um, an expert in design thinking, um, user research, um, 
strong conversation design skills, um, putting together sample conversations, putting together um, conversational flow diagrams. Um, you know, whether whether it's in in a platform itself or more or in more of a kind of a, a flow chart tool like Moose Charts or or Visio or something like that, or even Excel. Um, it doesn't really matter. But someone who does all that and someone who also has a strong language background and, and an NLU background, someone who is, who is sourcing user utterances um, for inclusion in training data sets, someone who is, who's, who's, who's training, um, you know, so we call them intent recognition models, um, who's training, you know, slots, grammars, entities, um, you know, whatever, whatever you might call that, um, you know, there's people who kind of like, they wear all the hats, everything from UX to, to, you know, NLU linguistics, data science, and like everything in between. I'm, it, there are organizations out there who, who take that approach and they, and they, and their conversation designers are full stack conversation designers. And um, I kind of, I mean, with all respect to, um, to those people. And, and there are some, some leaders out there who I really do respect, um, even though I kind of disagree with the approach. Mm. I, I think that allowing here at Amelia, we allow conversation designers to really specialize in conversation design and copywriting and UX. And we allow, um, NLU, um, our NLU specialists to really specialize in that, um, to NLU, um, model training, model, model refinement, iteration, and really just architecting is, is, you know, kind of what we call the role. NLU architect is ideally what it is because, you know, you might have a client come in and say like, like, okay, we have, we have 50 use cases. And so there are 50 intents and, you know, someone without a lot of experience, you know, kind of say like, oh, okay. All right. I'll get started training those right now. But an NLU architect can kind of like, you know, come in almost kind of like a doctor and say like, oh, okay, you tell me, tell me a little bit more about that actually. Huh, 50, 50 use cases. Okay, 50 intents. Let's have a look. And they dig a little bit further in and they find the overlap and they find, you know, maybe you know, some you know, clashes and, and they're able to say like, oh, okay, you know, actually, you know, why don't we use intents for 25 of these and then use entities and slots for um, – you know, times two, and then you kind of get your, you know, mapped to 50, uh, you know, 50 use cases. And that's, a, that's, you know, I'm oversimplifying that, of mm-hmm. course, but, but I think it's really important for, for, for the expertise in both disciplines to be there. And here at Amelia, we, we, our, our outlook is that, or our, our view is that, is that when, when you give the opportunity for, for two specialized roles, they can really, they can do just that and specialize and, and develop that deep expertise. Um, that said, I mean, it is imperative that, that our two roles work together. In fact, that same user research at the beginning of the project is going to inform both of our, you know, call it design. Um, just in a, in a little bit different ways. Um, so that's one of the things I love here about Amelia actually is that we work the NLU architects and conversation designers work so closely together. Mm, that's interesting. Now, I suppose it lets the conversation designer focus first and foremost on the experience <clears throat> without getting bogged down about, oh, is this the same intent as that over there? And how should we classify this? And is that what you're talking about? The conversation designer does the experience and the NLU architect will come over and say, ah, okay, these two actually could be the same thing. At this point, you might want to consider this because that's kind of conflict here and mm-hmm. basically help you figure out how to take what the experience should be and turn it into an actual working model, basically. Yes, I think so. And I mean, we're kind of talking about, you know, again, we're kind of back to this question about, you know, Amelia, at, I'm sorry, at like, a, like a chatbot and how well it understands and then a chatbot and like kind of what it says back. You know, there, there's, there's this conversation is a two way street here. Um, and so, you know, with the way that the, that the chatbot projects back, I mean, there's so much that's dependent on, you know, the persona slash personality that you've given this chatbot. Um, there's so much that you have to consider about the user, you know, what, you know, like when we're designing conversations, we're really thinking about the users and what situations they are in and what they are and, and how, and kind of, and really, even how they think about problems. What you know, what information do they? What information are they going to share? Like, what um, 
you know, how are they going to think? Like, what is going to be even an intuitive experience for them? An experience. I'll kind of zero in on, on that word. Um, you know, NLU architects, it, I, it's like they're busy doing their NLU architecting and their, and their model training and things like that. I like let them do that and be good at that. Meanwhile, I'm over here really focusing on, on the experience itself and kind of how like the content and the sequence of the conversation of what the chatbot is saying or the voice assistant is saying back and, and even like what the, you know, what information that that voice bot is asking for. Like I might, you know, like I might kind of go back to a client and say like, Hey, you you guys gave me a business requirement saying that, that the chatbot has to, has to ask people for their employee number in order to start this, you know, this experience, whatever. But I did some user research. Nobody knows their employee number. Like, I mean, they, they might know it, but like it's printed somewhere on their, on their ID card and they have to you know, get their wallet out and look it up. And it's just cumbersome. Like, how can we like, how can we do this better? Like, how can we ask them for something else? Can we ask them for their date of birth? Like, and the client might say like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe we could do that, you know, because we have that in their user profile and you know, do it a different way. And I say, oh, great. But again, that's something that the NLU ar- architect is not like, those are like really heavy UX like experience questions. I mean, you know, not to say that there aren't Swiss army knives out there and who, mm. who are really good and really passionate about doing all the things, but, um, but we like to have a little bit of division um, there so that, so that people can, so that NLU architect can be really focused on the, the solutioning of NLU and the, and the, and sometimes, you know, we over here on the UX side have to, you know, are a little bit more expansionist in their, in our thinking kind of, you know, sort of, you know, kind of blowing the apart the proposed experience and putting it back together and, mm. and stuff like that. So yeah, long answer to a short question, but that's no, 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 it's good. It's good. <clears throat> it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, it makes sense. And each one, each one focusing on their speciality. You know, mm-hmm. there's more yeah. attention to detail. There's less chance of of kind of overlooking things and stuff like that. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Um, was that one of you mentioned earlier on that that you know some approaches that you disagree with and i know i'd love to get and we're definitely going to get into your kind of analogy of how this is similar to to a marathon and not a sprint because i'm definitely oh, keeping yeah. in that but sure. first you kind of you kind of alluded to having disagreements with it with some uh, some other kind of processes without kind of naming names i'm wondering whether is that what you were talking about there where specifically they have one person that does everything or is there any other practices at the moment that you observe that you would kind of advise against or an alternative to Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, this is kind of apart from, you know, the question of, of, um, you know, full stack conversation designer versus, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just yeah, definitely. Just to just in general conversation design practice. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that I think that we, um, that's, that's tempting is the, 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 the practice, I would call it bad practice of just of building out, like starting building and just and build out the first idea that comes to your mind. And, and I will say that like, um, and, and, I've, and I've said this since, you know, some other talks I've given, like the, the platforms that are out there, um, the conversational AI platforms, like they're becoming really advanced and they're, beca- you know, low code, no code. It makes it really, really easy to get started. Almost too easy to get started. It's, it's a little bit, um, it can kind of get easy to put the cart before the horse and start, you know, building the first idea that comes to your mind. And you, you know, and when you're brainstorming, like, you know, right, how often is your first idea the best one? You know, you might start, you know, you might start, you know, structuring a conversation like, you know, based simply on the, on some business requirements that you got from a client and, and, um, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to ask question A, we're going to ask question B, we're going to ask question C. And then, okay, awesome. We designed that, hand it over to, to developers and, and, and you know, boom, it's done. But like, sometimes you want to like play around with that a little bit more. Sometimes you want to 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 spend. You know, what if we what if we you know transpose question A and question B? You know, B A C. What if we change the wording of question of question C? And what if we realize that um, that oh, you know, depending on the answer, you know, the person's answer to question C, we might actually it might actually benefit asking another question, question D. You know, and all these all these considerations, but you kind of have to, like, it takes a, it takes a little bit of like more, I I keep using this word sort of expansionist thinking to, to kind of 
iterate through that kind of stuff. And it takes, and it takes working through, through these questions with, you know, subject matter experts at, you know, you know with the, at the, within the organizations of the clients you're designing for, um, you know, working with, um, you know, maybe, you know, if you have the opportunity to use a research and actually talk with, with, uh, members of the end user population, it's all, all better. And, you know, I think that by, by do, and doing design reviews with clients, that's another really great, I'm sorry, not clients, uh, with your colleagues, um, you know, and, and having them sort of critique and challenge, challenge your work, challenge your design decisions, question your assumptions that you made. And we always are going to be designing on, on assumptions, design assumptions. And so um, kind of having, having that opportunity to do a little bit more of a, of a thoughtful, um, a thoughtful design, have, have a more well, well thought out design phase is going to, it's going to save a lot of rework down the road. Whereas if you like, you know, just built the first, you know, built a conversation the way it came to your mind, the very, at the very beginning, like, you know, engineers might spend hours you know, developing that or, you know, three for days, weeks, you know, depending. Mm. Um, and then at that point you are like, there's going to be this, you know, finished product and maybe a client is going to see it and be like, Ooh, yeah. Awesome. And it, does it work? Let's QA test it. UAT. Oh yeah, it works. And they put it out into production. And then they find out that, Oh wait, but it, it works, but users don't want to use it. Oh, users are getting stuck. And Oh man. Oh, what happened? Like, and then it's like, and then you've got a fire drill on your hands and then, and, um, it's just not, and you have to go and do rework and the engineers are resisting because, you know, we worked so hard and we'll build it this way, but now you want to change the whole thing. And, and it's like, you know, if you can know, if you can get that concept closer to, to, to the ideal before you go into build, that's fantastic. Granted, you're always going to discover little problems and little tweaks and little fixes that you should make and, you know, just depending on how your how your launch of production goes, but um, but the more that you can do, uh, the more designing you can do, the more thoughtful designing you can do on the front end, um, mm-hmm. you're gonna, you, you de-risk your project by by validating those desi- uh, design assumptions, um, mm-hmm. and it's uh, and it's helpful for the project timeline overall. Yeah, how do you approach validating? those design decisions, you know, you mentioned there, if you were debating, you know, should question A go before question B or other way Mm -hmm. around, or what happens if this happens at this point? And I totally concur that, but you can rush things out the door without considering Mm -hmm. anything and you actually get something live. And it's like, what are people saying to this thing? I didn't expect this. Um, So definitely taking that time to do more discovery, do more kind of research, yeah. But how how do you approach the validation side of things? You mentioned there bringing colleagues involved mm-hmm. and, and discussing it. But any other things that you do? Do you do user research, usability testing, prototyping? Like, what are some of the things that you use to to validate your design decisions? Yeah, yeah. I think I think like um, low fidelity prototyping can be uh, can be really great. Um, it's just showing and if you can put that in front of end users, or sometimes it doesn't have to be end users. You know, put it in front of one of your you know one of your clients. Um, one of your client partners, your client stakeholders, subject matter expert, and say like, like, you know, okay, hey, here's this, here's this paper prototype that I that I put together. It's not, you know, it's not a working, it's it's not a working chatbot experience yet because I don't want it to be. But here's, but here's version two. Yeah, I'm sorry. Here's version A. Here's version B, and here's version C. Look at look at these three and tell me and tell me which one you think is is going to be a little bit more appropriate. And the subject matter expert, may, oh well, yeah, I mean. I can definitely tell you that option that option A is is not gonna it's not viable because that's just not how that's just not how it works. It's not how our people think, whatever. But like B and C, yeah, I don't know. I guess you could do it either way. And then a designer can say like, okay, maybe we put this, you know, maybe we do a, a quick round of usability testing with you know with an, with somebody from your end user population, and that and that can give you some some answers. You know, doing you know running it by like three people. It doesn't have to be a lot. Um, you can, um, and then if you are still sort of kind of on the fence about it, you can do, you can do an AB test. If you're, if your you know, platform allows that, you know, to let, 
let 50% of users go through go through version A of the experience, but let 50% of users go through version B of the experience, and and you see kind of you know, depending on what you're measuring, you know, see how see how each of those perform, and let that kind of inform your approach. We we've actually done that a number of times here here at Amelia, and and sometimes even more than A B. Sometimes we've done like A B C testing, or I think one time we even did A B C D testing. <laughs> uh, and so so yeah, it's a good way to like get especially like later on in the process it's a it's a good way to you know figure out what mm. you know what the best what the best approach is and you know the most real way in the most real environment that you can have yeah that's a really good idea <clears throat> i mean i've never actually done any ab testing i've i've definitely um you know heard it discussed but honestly haven't mm. really seen it implemented that often mm-hmm. it's really weird because it's like <clears throat> In digital marketing practice, it's like a really common thing, or at least it was mm-hmm. before, I suppose, now, <clears throat> excuse me, landing pages and stuff like that have kind of got a, a standard now, haven't they? It's kind of mm-hmm. like being proven out. But certainly, like, you know, years ago, it was like it, everything was A-B tested. <clears throat> I'm assuming it, it still will be. You know, I think I remember seeing a case study of Netflix that have been known to try out 90 different thumbnails to see which ones are getting clicked on the most and stuff like that. So yeah. it's, uh, it's strange how you know this kind of real validation based on actual customer involvement isn't more prevalent i mean it's very rare that you hear a b tested get discussed isn't it yeah i mean i don't know i guess it depends on what space you're in i mean some yeah some some uh, clients and partners i work with you know a b testing is sort of a foreign concept or that's far from their mind um and others who i've worked with they they're like sometimes they propose it before i do um and so, so yeah, I mean, I guess it just kind of depends on where, you know, where you are in the space. Mm-hmm. You sent me a really good post from Erica Hall before. Oh this. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You kind of got a little bit touched on it a slight bit when you were talking about sometimes you'll just do some low fidelity prototyping and mm-hmm. get some mm-hmm. feedback early and stuff. So Erica, uh, for those that don't know, uh, is an author, design strategist. Uh, she wrote just enough research and I think the book's called, is it just called conversational design? Is that what it's yeah, called? It's called conversational design. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, there's a really good, I'm going to read it as well because the people who are listening on the podcast might not get the context, context and I'd love to get your opinion on it, uh, yeah, Matt. Yeah. So, so Erica's post on LinkedIn is from last week. It says, one of the current challenges with interactive digital design practice is that it's very easy, or in fact, too easy, to make high fidelity or highly polished artifacts while the systems these artifacts purport to represent have increasingly serious, complex, and invisible implications Ringing any bells, conversation designers. Uh, the perceived quality of the documentation has less and less relationship to the actual fitness of the concept or the decision making behind it, and it's easy to mistake the, poli- the polished prototype for the quality of the idea. People are often more reluctant to criticize something that looks finished or that offers a pleasing surface to the eye, or may not even know how to begin to challenge the idea without challenging the execution. This has implications for internal collaboration as well as for testing. So much of what goes by name. Or by the name of concept testing is actually a beauty pageant. A lot of bad ideas come in nice packages. Be intentional in the artifacts that you produce and how you respond to those that are presented to you, often taking a little extra time to work out ideas and questions in a rough or non-representative form really pays off, even if, especially if, it's a little uncomfortable. You kind of touched on it a little bit there, uh, Matt. You were saying that you don't waste too, too much time on high-fidelity design representations of artifacts. Mm-hmm. And Erica's hinting there at the very beginning that r- representing a conversational AI in a flow chart, whether it's lucid chart, voice flow, mm-hmm. whatever, is often very different to the complexities of the NLU model and the complexities of the dialogue management and what's mm-hmm. actually happening under the hood. So curious to get your thoughts on, on that because I know you were keen to, to you know, comment on it yeah yeah absolutely i mean like i mean erica's post here is is a gold mine um of of just wisdom um from her from her experience as a just as a design strategist for you know years and years clients and and digital technologies and all the rest um and i think she and i think she's exactly right i think that that when we when we rush to you know Build something, make it work, get it functional, and then, and you know, and show it to our stakeholders. Here, look what we built. Um, that's you know, then everybody kind of sort of kind of 
in in their minds there's they they develop this mentality of like ah it is built it is done it is ready and because it, you know it looks it looks good to my eye but you know i mean sometimes sometimes designers were like the least popular people in the room and we kind of you know can come off as like uh, you know pessimistic or um or even like combative because we'll you know because we because we push and, and poke and prod at the at the um at the underlying assumptions and and you know yeah you put together a prototype you made you, you know you you maybe you know, put together a full-on conversational AI experience, a, a, a functional chatbot. You know, bravo, bravo. But, um, but some, you know, what happens if that, if the way it was designed, it might be working great, but the way it designed, it's designed is is has problems because it's not because it's not what users necessarily need or it's not what users want. Um, you know, in your when you're presenting to, especially like, I mean. I think leadership, they are eager to, to, you know, see the solution, you know, don't, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so once they see a solution, all right, I like it, let's go. Mm. Um, But if you go, if you shoot your shot with with the wrong solution, that can have big time consequences and it can, and it can involve a lot of pain. It can involve, you know, worst cases, you know, loss of trust, um, user attrition, things like that. When, you know, it's not, you know, like, like Erica said, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes implicitly unsustainable concepts or or untenable ideas come in nice packages and and you have to yeah it takes it takes a lot of kind of of critical thinking and a lot of um healthy skepticism and a lot of um yeah thoroughness that designers are are tended really good at bring to the equation because we're trained on how to think in terms of problem statements. You know, we, we, we're specifically trained not to go to solutioning too fast. Um, and that's a funny, that's, you know, kind of a funny thing about, about how we work and why we're, you know, sometimes, you know, can come off as difficult team members is because we, you know, we're seen as like, Oh, slowing, you're slowing down the process. But, you know, when, but really by de-risking, by, by validating to some to design assumptions and by by you know challenging early ideas that hopefully are are representing a low proto, low fidelity prototype so that people aren't as attached to them like mm. we can we can get we can get traction and we can and we can advocate for a better way um, and not get and not get steamrolled by by leaders who who are kind of you know looking to just you know hit an aggressive you know hit an aggressive benchmark and aggressive timeline and, and, mm. you know, package it on, deliver it and move on. Mm. Yeah. And also it's, it's quite interesting because you mentioned earlier the, the democratization of the tool sets mm, and, yeah. you know, I, in the past I've done things where, you know, for previous clients where, you know, many years ago when we would do a, a, a voice flow prototype first just mm-hmm. to try and bring to life the concept and say like yes. this is the kind of thing that we're talking about mm-hmm. but when you hand over that or demonstrate that prototype it's very like for someone who's not experienced one in design and two in conversational AI it's like that's it then you know how easy was that that's so yeah. that's so that's that's fine and say like, no, no, no 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 this is this is just like you know bare but it's not even you can't even really talk to this thing yeah. um so it really kind of can raise expectations and then you can also dwell i suppose on taking that kind of idea and -hmm. spending a lot of time like figuring it out it's almost like the equivalent of a designer a graphic designer who spends all of their time trying to just get every pixel aligned perfectly Mm -hmm. before they present the concept to the to the Mm -hmm. client and in graphic design it's kind of easier because mm-hmm. you know your eyes can tell if something looks nice or not. Yeah. Conversation design, you, you, you're all, you mentioned it again at the beginning, it's all assumption based until you've put it in front of a, a user. Yeah. And so all of the time and effort spent on worrying about oh, what about this and should we have another intent there and should we make this look prettier and mm-hmm. dressing everything up just to present a concept. Mm-hmm. One de- takes further time away from actually figuring out one whether you're solving the right problem and two validating yes. whether you are or not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then two, just raises expectations on the client side because it's like, all oh, right, well, that's done. Nice one. Mm-hmm. Let's build it. 
And so it's, right. uh, you know, it's really weird. It is a bit of a bit of a mousetrap, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, you know, you I like what you said about the client expectations. And, and I mean, half of this work is, is about expectations management um, and, and, and stakeholder shepherding. Like that, I mean, I think that's what separates, um, I mean, you know, for, for any you know, young conversation designers who are listening, I, that, that is what separates the senior level from the, um, from the more, you know, early career designers is that, um, is that they, is that the senior level ones, they can, yeah, they, they can push and they can you know, manage expectations and they can, and they can explain, and they can explain trade-offs and, and, and manage stakeholders and set expectations and, and, and ultimately help, you know, it's almost like be like, be the prophetic voice in the room that like, that like shows like, look, like this is the better path. Like, you know, like choose, like choose the good path. Like don't necessarily go, you know, down the one that's, that's the most expedient or, or easy, um, helping. And, and that's, and it's the way that you win trust with stakeholders. Um, you will, over the long term, if you really want to have a, a long-term partnership then then, um, then that's the way to do it. If you want to have a short-term partnership, then tell the stakeholders what they want to hear, do, you know, make it to order, don't push back. You'll accelerate your timeline. You'll get something built. And then, you know, it, it won't, it, it won't work as well as it, as it could. And you will lose the trust that you, you know, that you, that you put a little bit of effort, you know, the little, the little trust that you won, you know, throughout the process, you'll, you'll lose all of it. Um, but, you know, by, but by you know, doing a good job early on and, 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 and validating and being, being a thought partner to clients, even though they might initially resist that, they will, they will, they will eventually come to, to, to appreciate you as an expert. Not that we're looking to get, you know, like, you know, our, you know, gaggle of adoring fans, you know, there's our stakeholders. That's not what it's about. It's about, it's about having, having good relationships and where our stakeholders trust us to be the experts and to guide them uh, and to be their partners um, along their along their conversational AI journey, along their you know along their business journey, and that and that's what this is. And and um, you know, now I'm kind of getting along. Mm. Maybe in a minute I'll start talking about you know marathons and and stuff like that. But but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of my thought on. on mm. Yeah, and you're right. But it is a partnership as well. Is you know it's mm. that. Yeah. It's very unlikely. I mean, we've we've spent a lot of time really here talking about that kind of initial process from mm-hmm. kind of like decision to do it through to like the, the early stage of design, research, mm-hmm. validation, you know, relationships with stakeholders, relationships with different team members, separation mm-hmm. of specialist skill sets, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. But ultimately all of that is in order to get something out there into the world in production and have mm-hmm. that thing be used and add value to the people that use it and to the businesses that use it. Yes. And once it, once it's out there, uh, the fun doesn't stop there because inevitably there's going to be different use cases that arise, things that are said to the, the assistant that you might not have anticipated, models mm-hmm. that need to be continually trained, new use cases that crop up that need to be designed and worked into the, the, the current kind of experience and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah. so clients are definitely looking for that partnership where they can have a helping hand throughout that journey, whether they're doing it themselves in-house or leaning on uh, you know your team and stuff like that, Amelia. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely is a partnership and a long-term thing. And I always say that the partnership, the the um, start of a project is really when it goes live, like it's, or at least that's the middle at best. It's never the mm-hmm. end, which is often what it right. is with like a website or something. Yeah, so I'm yeah. curious to get into that kind of analogy that you have about the kind of long-term commitment to it and any similarities yeah. it does have with running a marathon rather than a quick sprint and, and all that kind of stuff, because it is definitely a journey, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really is. It really is. Um, you, I mean, for the exact reasons that, that you said, you know, I won't, I won't rehash those. Um, you know, and I think be, by understanding it as a journey and, you know, first of all, you know, you kind of, yeah, you get away from this thinking of like, of like, you know, Oh, we're going to you know, just, you know, get, get things done and, you know, 
and get off to a you know fast start and, and how you know how fast can we deliver this first use case? Um, you know that's that's not not the right approach to take. You know, you sure, I'm sure people can deliver it super fast, and probably there are other organizations out there that can deliver it faster than we can. But like when you start your marathon out at a dead sprint, well, you know, I mean, you don't you don't have to be a a, a runner like I am to, to know that that's, that that's not an effective use of your, of your energy. And it's going to like, and, and if there's anybody lined up along that first second mile, they're going to be like, Whoa, look how fast that guy's running. Dang. That's wow. Yeah. Go, go, go. But like, but I mean the people who, but like what actually matters is not those people, those spectators in the first few miles of the course, people that matter are what matters is the outcome at the end. Um, you know, if there is one, you know, like at, at mile 26 kilometer 42, if you're, if you're um, into that, it's like, what, how, what does the clock say at that point? You know, I mean, at that point, you know, no one's, no one's really sprinting, sprinting. It's the ones, the ones who are really impressive are the ones who, ma- who manage their energy and, and maintain their momentum consistently throughout and um, the ones who, you know, didn't shoot their shot early, um, who, the ones who didn't, who weren't concerned with putting on a show for the spectators in the first few miles of the race, um, the ones who, who really were centered and focused on the, on the end goal which, you know, like you said a second ago, is, is value for the business and value for the users. And again, you know, you, the, there will be value for the business when there is adoption from the users and when, it, when users really embrace the experience. And users will only embrace the experience when, when, it, is, when it offers them value, when it makes, when it, you know, when the experience is accessible when it is easy, when it's, if, when it's efficient and quick, and when it is useful. And I think that that maybe is the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because even after the marathon, there's probably another marathon which needs to be done in the exact same way. And that yeah, next marathon yeah. could be the next use case or it could be the next channel or whatever, right. whatever. Right. You know? So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Uh, interesting. Um, so you kind of touched on some of the good qualities there, some of the um, components that make a, a good experience. Mm-hmm. Is there any other kind of like, and we have got to, mm. in a roundabout yeah. way from discussing the some of the potential bad practice and, and, and weaving in the good practice into that, but is there any other kind of like, you know, principles or mm. like guiding practices that you think that people should be adhering to when, when it comes to conversation design and conversational yes. AI? Yes, absolutely. And I, um, I'm so glad you asked. I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a slide of, um, with our, our seven principles, kind of seven principles that we use here in our design group in Amelia um, that, that are, and let me, I, can, I can share a screen with you here, mm-hmm. I think. Um, um, Chrome tab. So, um, yeah. So these are our seven principles. How, how fancy we, is that? You won't you won't listen to this if you're listening on the podcast. You won't see this, but uh, this is uh, we've never done this before. This is nice. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> so number number one that you know accessible. Um, well, here I'll, I'll list all seven off for our people who are listening, and then I'll explain each one very briefly. So I know we're almost out of time. Um, accessible, easy, efficient, useful, conversational, credible and intelligent accessible means that users are able to interact with it whenever and however it makes the most sense for them um you know sometimes uh you know on on a conversational ai experience and and the phone you know maybe you want like maybe maybe it's for users who are maybe it's a medical use case maybe users are sick maybe they have a sore throat maybe they don't want to have to say yes and no to every prompt and so, you know, maybe they want to just press one or two, you know, you'll have people who be like, well, well, that's not, you know, that's not sophisticated and fancy and so Well, who cares if it makes the, if it makes the experience more accessible to the users who need it, then, then do it easy. Think about, you know, m- not just physical energy, but m- mental energy that it takes to get through an experience to get for users to get 
what they need. You know, keep that energy required to a minimum. Efficient. How fast can they do it? How many turns of conversation does it take? You know, is the user's journey seamless? Are they able to get through it quickly? If yes, you're good. If not, then keep working. Um, useful. And I actually kind of think this is the, the most important one and the hardest one. Um, you know, these need to be helpful experiences to users that actually resolve real needs end to end, not just to be, you know, ideally it shouldn't just be a stopgap. Like, like, you know, Oh, you know, you have a problem with your, you have a problem with your password. Okay. I'll log a ticket for you. It's like, well, that's not what I need. I, just, I need to get back into my account. Like help me do that. You know, I could have logged a ticket somewhere else. Mm. Um, we're looking for opportunities to provide helpful consummate experiences that really at the end make the users feel like, ah, oh, wow, I, I, it took care of me. I thank you so much. You know, number five, conversational. Users, it isn't necessarily that, that it all has to be text-based conversation, um, especially in visual interfaces, but it, 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 it means that and you can use you can use buttons and things like that. The important thing here is that users have equity in the conversation. They have some control over the conversation. It should be turn based. Um, six credible. You know, give accurate, reliable information. Don't don't let users get burned by your chatbot. Um, and make sure in you know make sure that user that the chatbot is, com can, is uh, communicating in a smart, appropriate way for your audience. Right. And then finally, intelligent. And this kind of goes back to, you know, let you, and actually, you know, I love the way that, um, that you know, Greg Bennett from Salesforce you know, talks about this. You know, users should never have to change their language to be understood by your, to, to, uh, by a chatbot or an assistant. Like, it should be an intelligent enough to understand users, how they speak, and, um, and, and, and address whatever they might, whatever they might bring up. Um, this is very iterative. It's a, it's a long process, but it's, uh, you know, but it's, but it's worth it. And this is, and this takes the place of best practices. I'm often asked for best practices. And I sort of, I often kind of brush that aside because that's it, when people ask me for best practices, they're looking for a simplistic way of thinking. They're looking mm -hmm. for a checklist. They're looking for, you know, you know, please like, just tell me how to do the job. But that's not, I can't really give you a list of best practices that are going to teach you critical thinking. Because another thing to kind of consider here is that principles are sometimes they're in, they're in a little bit of conflict with each other. We don't have time to get into that today, but you will have mm. to make decisions about trade-offs. And, um, and that's a really important thing to, to be able to do and to lead clients through, to be able to say, you know, hey, you know, these principles are a template, they are a guide for our thinking, whether we're doing use case selection or we're doing conversation design, you know, wherever we are in the process, you know, we're going to have to make some decisions. Here's, here's, this, here's, you know, option A, here's option B. Here are the, here are the expected outcomes. Here are the expected outcomes. Here are the trade-offs for each one. Here's my recommendation because of X, Y, Z. And then the clients can, you know, make that decision and you can, you can sort of, use these seven principles as a, as a, as a, just a guide for critical thinking. You know, these aren't necessarily actionable design strategies, you know, because you, you, there are very worthwhile actionable design strategies that you can go get, that you can learn from reading Rebecca Evanhoe and Diana Dival's book. You can learn those from, you know, taking a class with Conversation Design Institute or, or UX Content Collective. Lots of great places to learn strategies, but, um, but, um, it's a, it's a longer effort. And I think that when it comes to really kind of helping our clients who aren't going to be conversation designers, help helping them to like, to think like designers kind of, mm. um, I think that these principles are a very, uh, are a very useful, um, digestible way, assuming that you are working with clients who are willing to think and who are willing to be flexible in their approach and who are willing to have their challenge, their assumptions challenged perfect wow that was very good well put um <laughs> it is right because you know the whole concept of best practice and stuff like that is uh is something that everyone's asking for but it's you're right there's there's, there's definitely it's there's a blend with conversation design of strategy and design and they both lead on to each other you could argue that the development leads on as well and it's all kind of the same part of the same thing um 
but every single use case requires a different approach and every single channel requires a different approach. Your target market requires a different approach. If they're all, you know, 75 year old and above, you know, cashing out pensions, your experience is going to be entirely different as they would be if they were all, you know, 18 year old booking holidays. So everything needs to flex and morph and you need to be able to choose the right things to use for the right kind of use case, you know? Yeah. I, I hate, you know, fancy design jargon, but, um, you know, to use one of one buzzword, like design has to be contextual. It has to fit, um, you know, the environments uh, and in the context of the users who are who are using it, um, and and also you know the underlying business systems and business processes to some to some extent, um, and um, and so and so yeah, contextual design, just like you say, is is very very important. It's something that we that we do well to consider. Um, as early as we can in the conversational AI journey. Nice, nice. Well, Matt, this has been absolutely an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, you can go to amelia.ai if you want to learn more about the platform and possibly even try it out or or learn how they can help your organization. Matt, any other, um, you've obviously mentioned a few good resources which we'll put in here. We'll put in Erica Hall's book. We'll put in the training providers. We'll put in Rebecca Evanhoe and Diana Deeble's book, which is definitely a recommendation of mine as well. Uh, Anything else that you you would recommend people check out? Ooh, um... Yeah, nothing off the top of my head right now. I would say if you are interested in in the space, um, you know, we are a very open community. You know, join in on LinkedIn. You know, give give Kane a follow, give me a follow. You know, Rebecca, and as you know, as you start chatting with us more, um, yeah, you know, feel free to like strike up a conversation. Um, you know, we are always interested in in the new perspectives that that people that people bring, um, and 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 just about everybody brings some sort of valuable experience, uh, sorry, some sort of valuable perspective from their own you know, valuable experience uh, personally. So, uh, so yeah, we're we're always we are a very open community of designers and we have a great thing going on LinkedIn. So yeah, come chat with us on whatever we're posting about on any given day. Nice. I will put your LinkedIn link in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Good talking with you. Cheers. Take care.